Let us pray. Father God, we come before your word this morning. And even though this is written 2,000 years, or this is of events nearly 2,000 years before the life of your son, your one son, your favorite son, in whom you loved, so much of what goes on in these verses, if we have eyes to see, ears to hear, anticipates Christ. I pray that there be an outpouring of the Spirit so that we might feast upon your word this morning, seeing more of Christ, more of this wonderful God, our Father, who sows stories of redemption. Yes, this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been said that many will miss heaven by a distance of roughly 18 inches, roughly a, a foot and a half for most individuals. See, the Bible is clear that all know God. All know God. And Romans chapter 1 talks about this. All understand there is a God in this world, that we aren't just the random clashing of, of molecules and atoms. We know that there is God, and yet we have hearts of stone. We have hearts of stone until our God changes us. And we have seen, and last time we were in this word, we saw that even Moses has changed how he refers to these brothers, these sons, whom throughout the narrative he has called only brothers and sons, and now he refers to them as men. And Joseph now, unknowing of where their heart is, where their heart and mind of these brothers, where it rests, he's now having his final act, his challenge for them. And really, as we've talked about throughout this passage, this is actually a challenge ordained or to ultimately be by God. See, throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, God really challenges his saints in one of two ways. He either ask them to basically give an account for what they believe, to articulate their faith in certain circumstances, having questions answered, or sometimes he arranges an outward situation in such a way that life's own trials either show union of heart and mind, or it shows an incongruency, a problem within it. We worship a God whom desires out of us to both be mindful towards him and have a heart towards him. Israel struggled with both problems in its history. The church of the Israel of the first temple very much was an Israel who understood they were people of God. Even these brothers in one sense, they understood they were from a unique covenant family of God. And yet, they did not have a heart for God. They did not... While they had a heart for God, they did not have a mind for God. Whereas in the New Testament, we see the Pharisees who had a, a, an exceeding mind for God, and yet there was no heart connected to it. And so Joseph, relying on this God-granted wisdom, is going to, for one last passage, give a diagnostic test in one sense to his brothers to see that connection between both the heart and the mind. And in our text, the Feast of the Brothers is now finished. And now the brother, Joseph, whose identity still remains veiled to these brothers, has commanded his servant to take a silver cup 
and place it in the bag of an innocent one in order to reveal where the guilty brothers stand. This final act will show, on what is, show us what is going on in regard to that short distance of 18 inches. And so the brothers stay the night at Joseph's home, and as soon as the morning light breaks, the brothers head back to their homeland, once again with silver being restored to them, but also silver that is not theirs. Joseph's personal silver cup is now found in Benjamin's sack, unbeknownst to the twelve brothers. And shortly after the brothers leave, Joseph sends his steward, whom planted the cup on Joseph's command, to now catch up with the brothers and ask them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Which at first we might say, That's not really true, Joseph. That's not really true. Why have they repaid evil for good? They joyously celebrated with you this feast. And yet, the heart of the matter is we have to remember what had happened 20 years earlier. Joseph, the young shepherd boy, had gone out in in obedience to his father, in desiring to be a servant to his father, to go out to the brothers to make sure they were okay. And yet, what did they do? They captured him. They snatched this servant of the father. They bound him out, first casting him into a dungeon cistern, and then plotting to kill him, and then decided to sell him into slavery. That's the real question Joseph would have wanted the answer to, and that's, in one sense, why he set up an elaborate test. But also notice there is more to this test. All throughout the brothers' encounters with this lord of the harvest in Egypt, the Egyptian prime minister seems to have this intimate understanding, this ability to foreknow what, who they are and have a unique interest upon them, and even an intense sense of their wickedness, of which they have hidden well for over two decades. His focus upon them, his gaze upon them, has unnerved them from the start. They don't see that he's Joseph, and so he sees appears to them to essentially be this clairvoyant Egyptian lord. And so in addition to the question of verse 4, why have you repaid evil for good, Joseph tells his servant to uncover the cup and state, is it not from this that my lord drinks and that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. Now it's important to clarify a few things. The cup is just a red herring. It's a decoy for the greater issue. Remember, the brothers don't cast Joseph into the pit because he had a cloak that looked nicer than the others. That wasn't the real reason. Actually, if you remember, the real reason they cast him into the pit is they hated his divine word from God. They hated the prophetic word that he revealed to them. And so I think in even this question, Joseph is really between the lines, once again referencing that which led them to cast him into the pit. We know that God speaks directly to Moses through dreams, not through cups. There was a practice in Egypt, however, of using cups for divinization to to speculate about the future. But of course, Joseph wouldn't have done that. Joseph speaks to the Lord personally. And so the real question is, why did you hate the one in whom God spoke to? And so the single servant comes upon the brothers and he speaks the word of the Lord, to which the brothers respond with an overwhelming confidence. They have no fault against this Lord. 
that the servant of the Lord, they can try to examine them all they want, but no fault will be found against this Lord. They haven't done anything to him. And yet between the lines, we know they're actually guilty of great sin against this Lord, of repaying both good with evil against this Egyptian Lord and attacking him because of his powers of divination. They are not just not realizing what's really being talked about here, not the events of last night's feast, but the events of 20 years ago. So confident are they that they are faultless before this Lord that they declare if any of the brothers should have such a cup upon them, they should die, and the rest vow themselves to slavery. Then there it is in verse 10. Verse 10 is not the heart of the passage, but this servant who earlier in chapter 3, verse 43, spoke for God, attributing the funds going back to the brothers, not to Joseph, but to the true God of Scripture, back when the brothers were too afraid to even enter Joseph's house, says something that most skip over, but it's incredibly peculiar. doesn't matter whether you're reading the King James, like Jesse Light, or the ESV, or the NASB. You're going to have to wrestle with What this steward says, he claims that the guilty one will not be Joseph's servant, but his servant. Now, there are two options of what this verse could be. Either this verse is kind of like Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 5 through 6. There are times in Scripture where God uses individuals to speak directly for him, and they'll even speak for God in the first person. Moses does that in that Deuteronomy passage I just cited. And that's possible. But there's this interesting reality, a reality that we have seen with Adam, a reality we have seen with Abraham, a reality we have seen with Jacob, that sometimes there are what is called theophanies. The manifestation, the unique presence of God inserted into the story of redemption pre-incarnate kind of visions of God, and some theologians even wonder, who is this steward? Who is this steward who offers personally a reduced penalty for the crime on his own authority and speaks as if the guilty one who is holding the cup, whom the steward ultimately knows is innocent, instead of a death penalty, would become his servant? What an interesting wording Moses has here. Can you think of any other innocent ones, innocent sons in Scripture who ultimately hold a cup? They were not ultimately guilty of creating in themselves. And yet they still bear the brunt of that guilt for such a cup and thus become the servants of serpents? Does that sound like anyone in Scripture? And so each brother lowered his sack to the ground, and each brother has the bag of grain examined from oldest to youngest. And then in verse 12, we read that the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. An innocent Benjamin, an innocent of any wrongdoing against Joseph, an innocent Benjamin who did not deserve to be holding the cup, is found with the cup, a cup of judgment, a cup that was worthy of a death penalty. And it is at this moment the distance of roughly 18 inches between the heart and mind is tested with these 10 remaining brothers. The steward in verse 10 had said only the one with the cup had to be his servant. The others could go free to Canaan. 
as if nothing had happened. They were free to abandon this, free, uh, this brother, just as they had done previously in life, the favored brother, just as they had done with Joseph. And instead of abandoning the favored son a second time, they tear their clothes in grief, and they all go collectively back to the house of the Lord of the harvest, whom through his divinely appointed power is still a most fearsome person to them. But as we learned last week, these are now men, men of God, no longer primarily referred to as children or sons, and so the men will go before the Lord of the house once more, the Lord of the grain harvest, and the question will become, how will they go before his face? And it is answered actually in verse 14. They go united. It's, if you read that verse, it says, Judah and the brothers went. But what you would actually expect, the verb there for going into the house, going into the home of the Lord, it's actually in the Hebrew, it's in the singular. It shouldn't be in the singular, but it's in the singular. They're so of one mind, this brotherhood, that we no longer should see them as a collection of individuals, but they're of one mind on this matter. They will not depart, and Judah is their head in this moment. He is their leader. And so they come in united into this house of the one in whom they feared. And Joseph meets them in this moment and asks them in verse 15, What deed is this that you have done? What deed is this that you have done? Or another translation of this verse is, common, is commonly found as, What is this you have done? Is that question off the lips of Joseph? Does it sound familiar? It should. This is the fifth time it's used in the book of Genesis. Genesis. It's the last time it's used in the book of Genesis. The first time God uses it to woman in Genesis chapter 3, verse 13. What is this you have done? The second time it's used, it's actually used from Pharaoh to Abram, a then Abram, when he pretended that his wife Sarai was his sister. What is this you have done? Then it's used later in Isaac's story with Rebecca, when Isaac follows the same pattern of Abram, pretending that his wife is not his wife, and Abimelech says, what is this you have done? And then it is used a fourth time by Jacob when he's been deceived by Laban and not given Rachel whom he desired, but Leah instead, what is this you have done? And Joseph, now says, as he's veiled still before the brothers, that word, that phrase, that would have rang in the ears of Judah. If you think I'm reading too much into this, all you have to do is look at the very next verse, verse 16. He asks them, what have you done? And Judah no longer answers, talking about a silver cup. And Judah is actually about to give us the longest response in the entire book of Genesis. The longest statement by any individual is this statement by Judah here. Abraham doesn't say anything. I have a longer soliloquy. Joseph, Adam, not even God himself, not Noah. It's here. This is the longest monologue in one sense in Genesis. And what does he say? 
Well, he knows again that this question is not just a simple question. It's as if it's from the lips of God himself. And so no longer were Judah or Joseph talking about a silver cup. And he's going to do something remarkable. You know, at some point, Benjamin had to have stated his innocence. Moses wants to make clear he doesn't give us any of the protests from Benjamin. He wants us to think of him as a silent, suffering, innocent servant. But Judah, before the Lord, before this question, before this question that might mean death for him, has this crazy idea by the world's standards in hearing such a question. He's going to go before his Lord, who has all power and authority over his life, power to crush him, and he's going to admit his guilt. He's going to admit his guilt. And in doing that, he's going to show he's learned the most important lesson of all between the heart and the mind for the believer of the true God of Scripture. And the lesson is this. You want to save yourself before this Lord? who seems to know your thoughts and anticipates your steps better than you do? Stop trying to deceive him in your false piety and your false righteousness and come clean before him. Come clean. And so Judah states, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. Judah then offers that all the brothers will become slaves to of this Lord if they must. They stand united even in this moment as Jacob offers them all up to this Lord and confesses their shared guilt before God. Jacob in this moment is the best of what I spoke about in the introduction. What is playing out is in God's hands and so God's will be done. And Joseph refuses the offer of all the brothers in verse 17. He will not take them all as slaves, he will just take the cupbearer and the rest can go free. Joseph continues to use the wedge of Benjamin in order to see if there's still jealousy amongst the brothers. But as Moses has made clear, they are now not only men, but they are of one mind on the issue, united together. And then we reach 18, which I got, I jumped and I got too excited about. This is the longest statement by any one individual in the entire book of Genesis. And Judah steps forward to deliver an authentic and impassioned appeal to the Lord of Egypt. And so the question becomes, what will Judah ground his appeal of mercy upon? What will be the basis of declaring mercy? And the basis is this. It's the father's love for the favorite son father's love for the favored son. Fourteen times. Two sets of seven. Judah will use the name of the father in why mercy needs to be extended. Oh, incredible. And this is remarkable for so many reasons. Jake, Judah is now loyal to his father and by extension the son in whom the father loves. He's overlooking the past favoritism that created jealousy within him of one son being loved more than him and recognizing his father is allowed to love one more in those whom he, in whatever he wills. Even when that favored son appears to be guilty and 
that guilt before the world might come at a cost, Judah still remains bold and unashamed of the son of the father's loves and the consequences that this love might mean for him. Oh, how we need more love like this. Judah doesn't want to see his father grieved anymore. Grief that has often come by Judah's own hands. Judah at this moment is having a sanctifying moment. The gospel is not just a a declaration of forgiveness of God from sins committed, but the spirit-born receiving of the gospel also means we change. We grow in love for our father, our shared father, in such a way that you hate the very idea of sinning against your father, our father, our heavenly one. This is why the true church of Christ cannot not follow the pattern of false churches that adorn the landscape of the world. We cannot turn a blind eye to the sins that the world desires us to turn a blind eye to because you can't have the kind of fatherly love you're called to in unrighteousness. The heart and mind have to be connected in which Judah is displaying in this moment. And then Judah, between verses 27 to 29, tells this Lord of Egypt of a father whom had two sons. One of the sons the father had believed was torn into pieces and had gone down into death. And because of this reality, the father no longer can bear the thought of death falling upon his his other favored son. The father, in considering the great loss of the first favored son, whom he believed went down into death, ripped apart, because of that great loss, a great transfer, a great... Change took place. A spe- the special place that the first son had with the father moved to the second son, this other son. It was a dramatic shift. It moved to Benjamin. And it moved in such a way that the very thought of losing another son like that ever again is a thought that the father can never bear to consider. He would sooner go down into the grave to reach him himself then ever let that happen again. And that's great news for you and I, Christian. Oh, that's such great news that there is a father in whom the loss of the one son, the favorite son, the treasured son, whom had been uniquely adorned with righteousness, that that father now transfers his love upon other sons, another son. This is the longest address in the book of Genesis. It wants you to consider such a love, Christian. It wants you to ask whether such a love exists. And of course, the hill of Calvary beckons to all of us. It beckons to all of us who have ears to hear it. Yes, yes, such a love exists. Yes, a son appeared to be torn apart and put down into death so that a father's love might transfer to another son. Hear the bellows of the Father's saving plans upon the lips of Judah from the hand of Moses thousands of years before its most dramatic fulfillment. Bonding such love, Christian, and establish such love as the core of your confidence, as the center of why you desire mercy. Going forward in life, no matter what you face, having the courage to face it all because of the Father's love. And then it happens. It happens in verse 32 and 33. The first time ever in Scripture this happens. And it happens from the lips of Judah. Judah, in considering the father's love for this other son, says, 
take my life instead. Let him go free. Take my life instead. Let him go free. We've heard of Joseph's remarkable love, but Joseph hasn't done something like this. This is the first. No son of Adam has ever uttered such a thing. My life for his? My life for his? This Judah, who once callously wanted to kill a brother, and then decided, what good is a dead brother? Let's sell him instead. This Judah, whom lied to a father about the death of his favored son. This Judah, who abandoned the covenant family of God in order to settle within the heartland of Canaan. This Judah, whom had broken faith with the people of God and married a Canaanite woman. This Judah, who had raised such wicked sons that God had to take the life of two of them. They were so grossly wicked. This Judah who treated his daughter-in-law like a prostitute. This Judah no longer has a heart of stone and a depraved mind, but a heart that loves the Father and desires to be mindfully faithful to him. In an overwhelming expression of his compassion, he becomes the first person in Scripture to outright declare, I'll be the substitute, my life for his life. Judah, in whose line the Messiah himself would come, the ultimate substitute of one life for another. He tells this Lord, you may have me, take me instead. You can't have him. You can't have him. And an idea like this has never been offered in this kind of way by a son of Adam. And compassion like this is most unexpected. And compassion like this is most overwhelming. And compassion like this is nothing short of being divinely inspired. And as Judah offers such an unthinkable compassion on behalf of the son in whom the father treasures, Judah proves he has a deep love and affection for his father in offering himself as a sacrifice, loving the father more than he even loves his own life. Tomorrow, I'm guessing the multitude of us will, in our collective reality, wish people happy Independence Day, more people happy Independence Day, for a limited freedom in time and in a land called America than we likely witness to in giving the gospel, the good news of God's saving reality of a father whom so loves us that he does not want us to be cast into death, a son who was willing to offer himself for our sake, and a spirit who holds us fast to him. I would guess that if the collection of, of well wishes of Celebrating independence, American independence tomorrow, will far exceed how many times we as a collective last week shared the gospel with others. Even though that's an eternal freedom, an eternal inheritance, an eternal reality, we have more courage to say, celebrate American liberty rather than true, eternal, God-given liberty and stories of redemption. And I, I include myself in on that. I feel, felt a conviction about that this week. And let's be honest. If we don't see this as an infinitely greater liberty to enjoy and celebrate in life, you've got, we've got something mixed up and wrong in the 18 inches between our mind 
in our heart. The love of the Father has the power to change lives and to change hearts and to change minds and to change those who were once villains in his story into unique heroes by way of crazy things like cups of betrayal and sacrifices and even what appears to be death. And as Joseph sees the love of Judah, the brother, who was most responsible for his being cast into slavery, now willing to lay down his life in order that Benjamin might go free, Joseph knew all he needed to know about the mind and heart of his brothers. And in the face of a love like this, Joseph begins to solve in witness of such love. What a glorious gospel we have to share. What a story of love of the Father, of sacrifice of the Son, that we have to share with people and hopefully see them grow through the fruit of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit. More and more of the world is utterly convinced that this is just a collection of poorly arranged myths. They can't see it. They can't hear it. It's all over the Bible. You need a substitute. You need someone who will stand in the gap for you and say, take my life instead of his. I am guilty, I know. I need an innocent son who will bear the cup of wrath that I deserve to bear, and so do you. And so do the, those we wish Happy Independence Day, Day tomorrow morning too. We need to share this. We need to be moved. We need to have our courage. We need to be motivated through a father's love like this, through a son's act of sacrificial love like this. Pray that we find it. Let's pray in Jesus' name. Father God, I may have stumbled on my words at times in this sermon, but I hope the clarity of what's been revealed to us still moves through the text. How we can see in the fullness of Benjamin, of Judah, and of Joseph, unique shadows and shades of the ultimate unveiling of history. Not the unveiling of Joseph's face, but the son of glory on Easter morning. The world continues to have mockers and scoffers. The world continues to have people who would rather celebrate a limited independence than an eternal one. Let us, Lord, have the courage and boldness to enter into this world, to leave these doors, and to witness and to be unashamed of the great Father in whom we love and adore. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.